You know, we talked, we talked about revelation and we, we asked God for revelation and I'm wanting to... Psalm uh, 49 is a very sobering psalm. Hear this, all you peoples. Listen, all who live in this world, both low and high, rich and poor alike. My mouth will speak words of wisdom. The meditation of my heart will give you understanding. I will turn my ear to a proverb. With the heart I will expound my riddle. Why should I fear when evil days come and wicked deceivers surround me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of their great riches? No one can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for them. The ransom for a life is costly. No payment is ever enough, so that they should live on forever and not see decay. For all, I, for all can see that the wise die, that the foolish and the senseless also perish, leaving their wealth to others. Their tombs will remain their houses forever, their dwellings for endless generations that they had named lands upon them after themselves. People, despite their wealth, do not endure. They are like the beasts that perish. This is the fate of those who trust in themselves and of their followers. I'll cheer you up. Just kind of a fact of life. I'm going to, I had a call from a friend of mine who I play golf with occasionally. Um, he's a financial advisor and uh, he started off in the office that we were doing consulting and so he got my $100 when he started as, the, as a foundation member of his, his work. Anyway, he phoned me up and said, oh, we just got a letter that your uh, insurance policy, your life insurance is now finished in June. So if I die $500,000, you know, Cheryl gets rich. Now if I die, there's nothing. So I've got to go and see him on Friday to see whether we should actually do something. But that's it. When I die, and I'm actually quite sensitive, and I mean this very seriously to some of you, because I know there have been some deaths here in the last, actually, days. And so I pray that actually what we're talking about will, in, in, a, in a strange way, be comforting. But that's it. You know, there was a phrase that said, so what are you going to do with your life? Well, I want to go to university, or I want to get a job and get qualified, and then what? And then I want to have a home, and I want to have children, I want to have marriage, and, and then what? And then what? And you just go through life with the and then what? And then I want to retire, and then I want to, you know, live a healthy life, and then what? And then I'm going to die, and then what? I, I didn't stand up for the notices, but on Tuesday, I'm doing a, we're doing a workshop on wholeness, uh, toward em, emotional wholeness, which is, frankly, I think, a shared journey for all of us. But what we're going to look on, at on Tuesday is fear, facing fear. And many, many, many people are living facing fear and living trying to, to, to resist fear or control fear or keep fear away or medicate fear down. And the and then what about what happens after you die is, is the big question. And it's strange that, you know, I will spend $300 or I, I was told I'd have to spend something like $700 a month to release $500,000 if I die, when I die, not if I die. Cause, um, there's a lot of money and people are spending a lot of money on insurance and there's a balance. I'm not going into that. I'm merely saying it's amazing how much we will invest in insurance policies. And the only policy that gets neglected is so what happens when you're dead? And that is often a question that sometimes is is asked but is not asked and people live suppressing all kinds of things. I've taken lots of funerals and I've told you before, there's some funerals that are awful but there's no faith, there's no hope, there's no life. All you do is remember the kind of miserable life of the person who just died. What I really mean by that, I'm not being sarcastic, is, is all our lives when they're really strong, yeah, we did some good things but in the scheme of the world, you see, nothing we do earns anything with God and that often comes up in funerals. He was a good man. This is actually not going to be a depressing talk, don't worry. I'm just trying to get your attention and get you to think. So it's only five minutes of going, oh my word, what are we going to, is he going to down us today? I wish I hadn't come. 
I'm just, you know, talking about death is important. So the disciples struggled with this. The psalmists talk about it. And there's, a, there's that part we read about Thomas where the disciples have all gathered just before that. The, the disciples have all gathered in the upper room. It's locked because they're still afraid. Jesus has died and there are rumors of his grave being empty. Peter has run there. We talked about that last week. Mary ran there. John ran there and beat Peter, he told us. Um, he's, people have appeared, he's appeared on the Emmaus Road, and then he comes into the disciples that evening of the resurrection. And he says, here I am. And he says, touch me. Here's my scars. And they are amazed because they can touch him. He's not a ghost. And uh, you probably can identify, well, Hey, Thomas, you know what happened when you weren't here? Jesus came. How would you feel? I've been following Jesus like the other 11 disciples. He called me and he called me by name and I followed him. Why couldn't he have waited until I was there? Might be, Thomas, why did you leave? But there's that sense of, well, they know and I don't have that same knowledge. And so Thomas, with all his friends saying, we have seen Jesus, still says, unless I see, I will not believe. And I'm ticked off because I was left out. And, you know, Thomas wasn't the only one. I mean, Mary went to the tomb and she was totally confused and didn't really know what to believe. Peter went to the tomb and John went to the tomb and they looked inside and they saw it empty and they didn't really know what to believe. And in fact, when you read Mark's gospel, as we did on Wednesday morning, when, when Jesus appeared to the disciples, he rebuked them for stubbornly refusing to believe what they'd been told. And in this uh, translation, we have Jesus coming to Thomas and saying, here I am. And Thomas just breaking and saying, oh my God. And then he says that phrase, blessed, because, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's us. One of the things you see around the whole resurrection time is these disciples wrestling with what was happening. And I think one of the keys of, of seeing something break through in your life is to wrestle with it. Courage you not to be passive. You can try wrestle with the wrong thing, of course. You can wrestle with God to get your way, and you will never win. So let me read this to you. It's written by a Christian apologist. It is somebody who, gives, uh, who, who tries to defend the Christian faith through reason, which is a good thing. Here are some of the facts relevant to the resurrection. Jesus of Nazareth, a Jewish prophet who claimed to be the Christ, prophesied in the Jewish scriptures, was arrested, was judged a political criminal and was crucified. Three days after his death and burial, some women who went to his tomb found the body gone. In subsequent weeks, his disciples claimed that God had raised him from the dead and that he appeared to them in various times before ascending into heaven. From that foundation, Christianity spread throughout the Roman Empire and has continued to exert great influence down through the centuries. So, um, some of you work out because apparently the, 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 the greatest thing you could have is, is a six-pack, abs, you know, strength, good tone, like I have, just bubble-wrapped, as I say. I want to talk about your spiritual core because if you could see my spiritual core, you would gasp. I've been working on it since I was 10. I'm serious. If you could see my spiritual core, you would be going, whoa. Because I've been working on it for a long, long time. That's the one that's actually going to endure. This thing will be in an own. And it, what I'm wanting to speak about is that our core is what's going to keep us. I read this because I, 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 you know, I don't want to just tell you what's not true. The core, this is physical now, supports everything else. Even though it's easy to presume that when we're moving our extremities do most of the work, the opposite is true. Most movement starts at the center and moves outward. A rock-solid center will ensure that your movements are strong and pain-free. 
I've experienced that more spiritually than physically, I think. So I'm wanting to talk about the core values of Christianity, core values of faith. You see, the thing about um, belief and blessed are those who believe when they do not yet see is how do you believe what you don't see? We actually do it all the time. You book a holiday somewhere and you hope that place exists. You hope the plane doesn't crash. There are things that happen and planes do crash, but you still get in and do it. You set your alarm, maybe your burglar alarm, so that when you come here, uh, people don't break into your home. There's lots of ways you, work, you live by faith all the time. There's only so much you can prove, and most of the stuff we do in our lives we can't prove. We just have enough evidence to believe it's trustworthy. One of the things you will notice as well is that you have, you, you're emotional. And if you trust and believe and your faith is on your feelings, your faith will probably be up and down like a yo-yo. If you actually just let your feelings determine what you believe, when you believe, when God is real, good luck. I bet you we could give lots of testimonies of trying to do that. What happens when your feelings aren't there? What happens when something terrible happens? What happens when? Fill in the blank. If you don't have a solid core, you will crumble. And you will get angry at God and you'll say, God, I don't believe you care. God, where are you? Da, 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 da. We all go through that. But it's a very immature way of living. It means your core is not developed. You see, your core is about your mind that has to speak to your heart. Sometimes your heart has to speak to your mind. But sometimes your mind has to speak to your heart and say, um, do not fear for this is what we place our faith in. And as somebody else here would say, I say this to say that, I say that to say this. We're talking about the resurrection. And what happened when Jesus went to the cross and what happened when Jesus got into that tomb and the stone was rolled away? That's when human beings said, that's it. Some of them said, that's it, because now we've killed this nuisance who's trying to be a religious fraud. That's the, that's the church of the day. The soldiers and the Roman power of the day said, that's this, because this little revolutionary is now done. We've, we've killed lots of them. Lots of people like Jesus before. He's done. He's in a tomb. That's the end of the story. It's sealed and it's got Roman guards in it. For the Roman guard to let somebody out of a tomb or, or to disobey an order, one of the ways they, they responded to, guards, to Roman soldiers that failed was they stripped them, lit a fire with their clothes and they basically cremated them. It was a vicious, vicious, vicious cycle, vicious uh, power struggle. So the tomb closed was the end of the story for human beings. There wasn't anywhere else to go. And so God begins to rise up and start saying, I am not like everyone else. Jesus is not one spiritual leader among many. Jesus wasn't crucified for any other reason than he said, if you've seen me, you have seen God. Jesus is not like Muhammad. Jesus is not like Buddha. Jesus is not like any other spiritual leader. There is a, there's a point where in our culture of pluralism and our culture of it doesn't matter what you believe, it does matter what you believe. Jesus was crucified because he said, I'm not one among many. Now, you can tolerate all kinds of expressions because if I were running Canada, I would be saying everybody has to have the freedom to do whatever they want in terms of spiritual stuff. But you can also have the freedom to disagree. So I'm not advocating you've got to oppress people. I'm merely saying Jesus did not say, I'm one among many. That's why he was killed. And when he was in that grave, that was the end until God said, I will now demonstrate, he's already been demonstrating, but I will now demonstrate that I am God, you can't kill me. Christianity is unbelievable. You will never get to Christianity by trying to prove it intellectually beyond a certain point, even though I'm going to actually give you intellectual substance this morning. I'm merely saying that you can't get there emotionally and you can't get there just by feeling. You've got to look at the whole circumstance to say, could this unbelievable claim of this unbelievable man be unbelievably true? 
And you have to somewhere be able to speak to your heart when everything around you says there is no God. There will be a point if you haven't come to that place in your own life, there will be moments in your life where you go, does God even care? Because if I look through circumstances, both at my life or at other people's lives or political areas of life, I will go, there can't be a God. Because why would he allow this? That is trying to find evidence for God in a broken world. That's trying to say God is responsible for the broken world. God is responsible for what he does with a broken world. God is not responsible in the sense of he causes the brokenness. In the, court, in, in the release of freedom, he gives, he gives the opportunity for us to exercise will. And a lot of the things we rant and rail about against God is because we are expressing our freedoms, whether it's the Islamic extremists or whether it's all kinds of other stuff. There's a whole battle for who's going to be God because the one thing we know in this world is there is a battle for power. There's a battle for control. It's deep within the fallen nature of human beings. It's deep within your nature and my nature. So there's part of us that very willingly crucifies Jesus because if you are the only way to God, then I'm going to have to submit to you. And I'm going to have to start saying it's your will, not mine. And somewhere along the line, he does say there will be a time where the gift that is your life, will be, you will be required to answer. And I will ask you, what have you done with this life? That's not fire and brimstone. It's just saying as sure as gravity exists, there will be a time where God says, so what have you done with your life? I don't think he will be saying it with great anger because he loves you. He adores you. He's just going to ask the question. And Jesus came into the world. God so loved the world that he sent his son was that you can't get revelation of the Father's love through your circumstances. They're so fickle. The greatest place for the revelation of God's love is in his son, who in the midst of brokenness demonstrated forgiveness and love and grace and mercy and power and kindness and goodness. So the core value for the Christian, the core that gives you strength in your spiritual ab is knowing who Jesus is. There's all kinds of talk about higher powers. Higher powers don't have any strength. They might give a little bit of hope, but they do not have strength. It has to lead to Jesus. Jesus, there are all these claims he made. John puts them out. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. Before Abraham was, I am. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection, the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. And all these statements he makes, he doesn't leave room for I am one of. I am the bread of life, but you might prefer the, you know, the Muslim uh, muffin. Or, uh, I don't know what, the uh, Buddha bakery or something. It's not a smorgasbord. It's not just pick your own. He said, I declare to you, I am the bread of life. So, what do we do with that? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. C.S. Lewis is famous as saying, if Jesus wasn't who he claimed to be, he was crazy. Because he doesn't leave room for uh, a neutrality. He doesn't leave room for an ambiguous place. He says, I am. And sometimes in our own lives right now, one of the reasons we don't uh, deal with faith very well is because we're still ambiguous. We don't believe that Jesus is who he claims to be. So he doesn't have strength in our life. Someone said to me this week, I had coffee with him, he said, what about the Masons? And I said, the, the Masons uh, will never lead you to Jesus. The Masons will fill churches with religion. But if, you're, if, you're, if you follow the Masonic Lodge, you will never have a personal relationship with Jesus because it's demonic at its root. Quite happy to say it publicly. It's totally demonic at its root. Its rights and everything about it actually denies Jesus as Lord. But it's a fake and superficial men's club because the church failed, which is like a lot of things. Same with the Shriners, Job's daughters, all of those things. They're actually demonic. I'm sure I might be pressing somebody's button, but look at your button and go, why would you feel 
One of the things the demonic doesn't like to be is exposed. So what I'm saying he doesn't like. Because rather in Canada, let's just all be happy. But the demonic works through these very peaceful ways. It's really difficult. You see the Shriners Club coming up in golf adverts and they'd have these children's hospitals and all that stuff. And you go, well, how can that be wrong? Well, the scripture says the demonic will masquerade as an angel of light. And you go, well, looking after children isn't wrong. But if you're catching fish, you don't give them something they don't like. You give them things that appeal and then you bring them in slowly. See, Satan doesn't mind you believing in God. He just doesn't want you to be enthusiastic about Jesus. And so you'll find many religious people belong to all these things. And they say, but it's all fine. And you go, we've been through this as a church and I've also been through it personally with people. As soon as you start pressing them on personal relationship with Jesus, anger flares up and I get called all kinds of names. I'm merely illustrating in our culture how Jesus would be crucified because he would not back down and say, no, it's okay. It's the reason why we don't suffer for our faith in Canada. We don't stand up for it. And I'm not advocating we have to go around looking for martyrdom. I'm merely saying the road to hell is paved with compromise. I wasn't meaning to say any of this this morning. I'm going to be talking about the resurrection. The reason I'm talking about this, I think, is because the resurrection comes out of the ground with such boldness and such force. And it says, if God is real, then what, what happens to the rest of life? The revelation of God and his character in Jesus all hangs on the resurrection. If the resurrection of Jesus is not true, then everything else is. Then, yeah, it's all just whatever, whatever goes. But Jesus is the only spiritual leader who has ever claimed to be God. He's tied his teaching to himself. And said, "My, I am, if you've seen me, you've seen God. Uh, Muhammad doesn't say it. Islam doesn't say it. None of the faiths say it. They all talk about their teaching. They do not talk about their identity. Jesus said, my identity is one with God. They've also never been heard of after they've been killed or died. And so when Jesus dies, he goes the way of all other religious leaders until he rises again and says, I'm not another religious leader. I am the son of God. I am who I claim to be. And this resurrection will substantiate that radical claim that I make. So the core value that we begin to look at is this is outside of my feelings. This is outside of my control. This is outside of even my paradigms of how I think. That two, just over 2,000 years ago in the Middle East, this historic event took place. What do you do with it? You can go and you can travel there. You can see the places. You can walk the shores of Galilee. You can see where Jesus stood and said, I curse you, uh, the cities of, uh, what were they now? The three cities on the, on the shore of Galilee. You can see where he curses them. Chorazin, the or I always get them mixed up, uh, and Capernaum. I've stood there on the basalt. Of, it's volcanic black. You can see little bits of, of the ruins. Curses these cities because they would not believe in him. And you, I don't have time to go through all this. The basis of the faith is rooted in what it says in the scriptures. I'm going to give you evidence for the resurrection soon. But that's based on what the scriptures, what's in the scriptures. And so... To strengthen your core, you have to root your faith in something that is beyond your feeling and beyond you. So if you did a study of the authority of the Bible, you would find that the authority of the Bible has more intellectual evidence to support its reliability than any other document in history. There are over 4,000 manuscripts that align themselves with the scriptures. Almost all of the scripture that talks about archaeological or cities are substantiated. As archaeology has begun to explore and explore and explore in the Middle East, it, it usually aligns. For years they thought they were talking about uh, Jesus healed somebody and there's, there are four porticos. Uh, it talks about, uh, in, I think it's, it's Luke. And in the 1950s they found those four with the pool. 
near the temple. It goes on and on and on. I'm not familiar enough to, 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 to give you all the examples. But I'm merely saying that there's an enormous amount of evidence to substantiate the leap of faith that somebody would have to make who's not Thomas. In other words, for those of us who have not seen Jesus in the way that Thomas could. So how do you, how do you make sense of Jesus' claims? And how do you make sense of the resurrection? This claim that Jesus rose from the dead. I want to give you, I'll only give you nine. Because you can't prove it. You can't prove love. You can't prove it's going to be, the sun's going to rise tomorrow. You can't prove a lot of things. So you say the evidence around something is what I rely on. You build the case for the evidence for the resurrection around evidence, not around proof. Because you can't prove something that only happens once. And we're not even going to go into the unbelievable birth of Jesus and his life and and all the things that he did on earth, which are equally remarkable. So what happened to the body is the question, because if Jesus can be proved not to have risen, then he's a fraud. So I'm going to give you nine reasons. And don't worry, I'm not going to go on forever. First reason, the Romans stole the body. Romans were actually very uh, clever rulers. They usually allowed people to explore their faith as long as they bowed to Caesar, because they realized that that's how they keep control of people. But the Romans stole the body, but the, 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 the stone had a seal in it put there by the Romans. And I've just mentioned, if you were a Roman soldier and that body was stolen, you would die. You would be killed, no question. If that seal was broken and you were responsible, you would die. We read in one of the Gospels that the Roman soldiers, when the, when the, when the body was gone, they went to the, the religious leaders and, and, and they were told, they were given some money and told to spread a rumor. But the bottom line is that it's very unlikely that the Roman soldiers, for no reason, would have broken the seal and would have stolen the body. Because when the Christians began, and they weren't even called Christians, when the Jewish sect at that point began to raise up noise about this Jesus having risen, all you have to do as a Roman leader is present the body and say, well, there are a bunch of flakes, but they didn't bring the body ever. Number two, the disciples stole the body. So they have to get through the, 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 at least six or seven Roman guards to get hold of the body. They have to roll the stone away. They then have to take hold of the stone. They have to get, take hold of this body and hide it somewhere. The most compelling problem with that is that the disciples' transformation of their lives, which is another evidence a bit later, was all then based on a lie. So Peter's sudden boldness in the marketplace and the the disciples' commitment to following Jesus and his legacy uh, for the rest of their lives was something that was very compelling. It actually caused all of them except John to be killed. And who would in the end die for a lie? Very few people. Some people will. But the other thing that happens is if, if, if you're under pressure and, well, a lie usually, we know it in politics, even from, say, let's go back to the Holocaust. People hound people until they're found and lies eventually surface. And it has never surfaced regarding Jesus' resurrection. There's never been a compelling case. And people have tried. Many people have tried. There's one uh, Morrison who, who wrote a book called uh, Evidence That... Or Who Moved the Stone in the 1950s, I think. And he was a lawyer and he wanted to prove that Jesus hadn't risen and he became a Christian and then sold the book as part of evidence for the resurrection. So the disciples stealing the body is highly unlikely because of what happened to them as in, in subsequent years as they actually laid down their lives with this very thing that they would be accused of lying for. They also didn't expect to see Jesus. They didn't expect the resurrection. So they didn't have any really grid to go, let's raise him from the dead. I think it was, it was too beyond their understanding. They were too shocked by the events themselves. Number three, Jesus was not dead. He just swooned. 
He had been crucified. He had nails in his hands and his legs. He uh, basically came off the cross and he was unconscious and he was put in a tomb and then he kind of got up and kind of went, oh, feeling good, moved away a stone that three or four men had to move at least and then disappeared somewhere and appeared again and then he, he walked through walls. He did all kinds of things that were seemingly supernatural. It's very difficult to hold on to the swooning theory. Probably the most compelling evidence against that is when the Roman guard looked up at Jesus, they normally broke the feet, the legs of those who were crucified because they basically wanted them to die. And so when you break the legs, the body drops and then it kills you. And he didn't even bother. He looked at Jesus and said he's already dead. And this is a Roman soldier who's killed people. He knows what death looks like. And so he didn't bother to break the legs. And the broken, non-broken legs of Jesus are prophesied in the Old Testament. That's another whole story. So it's very unlikely that Jesus would just be, uh, have swooned. There were grave clothes still in the tomb. When they went into that tomb, the grave clothes were laid there. And they weren't just crumpled up. They, they looked like the body had just come right through them. Because they noted it, that the head, head stuff was here and the rest. It was a remarkable way that they found that tomb. It looked like the body had just come through the clothes. Another reason for believing in the resurrection, I've already said the Romans didn't steal the body, the disciples didn't steal the body, Jesus didn't swoon, the grave clothes were remarkable in the way they were positioned. The other were the living witnesses. Over six weeks after the resurrection, there were over 500 people that said that they had seen Jesus. Many of them are documented. The early, the, first of all, the disciples, and then he appeared to over 500 over six weeks. Now, he appeared to people who knew people. So it was like, if I die now and I appear to you, you all know each other. So you kind of, there's a sense of accountability that comes from knowing the people who are talking. So the, the, the multiple, some people say, no, they just had hallucinations. You don't get mass hallucination. It's not part of what hallucination is. Number six, there were trans, the transformed lives of the disciples. The, the, trans, the lives of those disciples from fear and being locked away became ones of boldness that went out. You read it in the beginning of Acts and throughout Acts. You see the remarkable transformation that took place in these men and women. That they went from a place of timidity and fear into a place of boldness. And they said, I will now lay down my life for this because I now see, I know. And so transformation is huge in terms of why would they do that if nothing had actually significant happened? Certainly not for a lie. Some people say the disciples went to the wrong tomb. Well, then find the right one. It's highly unlikely that so many people would be going to the wrong place and nobody would spot the mistake. Number eight is the martyrdom of the disciples I've already alluded to. These men and women who, who over the next hundred years, particularly, the martyrdom of people who said Jesus is Lord is remarkable. Transformed lives, transformed hearts. It's the beginning of those who haven't seen Jesus, but who have seen him spiritually and say, for this I am willing to give my life. The resurrected Jesus is the one who transforms. Which brings us to another evidence, which is our own personal testimony. That I haven't seen Jesus in the flesh, but I have seen him in the spirit. He's changed my life. When I talk to him, when I, when I speak of him, when I do things, things change. When I lay hands on people, things change. Because his spirit is alive and lives in me. Now, the reason this is important is because there are moments in our lives where we have to have our minds saying, this is why I believe. When my circumstances are all in chaos, or my personal life is causing me total pain, when things are not going as I want them to go, which is not infrequent, there's a point where I need to be able to say, this is why I believe in God's faithfulness, because of what he did in Jesus, through Jesus. If I look at Jesus, I see the love of God, and that's the one who, in whom I'm playing, placing my faith now, in the circumstances that seem to deny he even cares. That's when you start building a strong core of faith, 
where you go, that is what's going to hold me, not my circumstances. Most people live from their circumstances. They're spiritual chameleons. If things are going well, God loves me. If things aren't going well, no, he doesn't care. And so they wonder why they don't have any power in their lives. It's because it's powerless. So there's an element of... It's, I was thrilled when I found that I didn't have to sacrifice my mind to follow Jesus. That there was evidence you could look at. That there were, there were the conversations like this one today that actually strengthened me, give me confidence to, to declare Jesus is Lord. To declare Jesus or he's greater than every other spiritual warrior who wants to contend. Does that make sense? Does it help you? Because we need to, sometimes we come into worship. I don't feel like worshiping. Why? Because my circumstances, my family, my emotions have sucked me dry. So what? Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus is Lord. Well, it doesn't, sure doesn't feel like it. No, because you've just become a grave again. You've just actually rolled away a stone. You rolled over yourself a stone. And no matter how good God is, he can't get in because you've already made a decision of faith that he's not good. Every decision you make is by faith. For God or against God, it is by faith. Everything you do is by faith. You can't dismiss it. Every decision you make has a faith base to it and a belief system. So the resurrection comes up in the face of that and says, I will not change. Death is defeated. There is life beyond death and there is life before death because of death or because of the resurrection. That is our hope, that God is faithful on this side of death and beyond death because of Jesus and the resurrection. Amen? Does that give you any hope at all? You can also, I could also talk about the evidence for the resurrection of Saul, who became Paul, through the martyrdom of Stephen, another transformed life. And then maybe you could whisper to the person next to you, if you really could do that, and say, my transformed life is evidence of the resurrection. The fact that God lives in me. He's alive in me. I, he's still got work to do in me, but he's my hope. Let's stand, shall we? Let's pray. You see, if you base your faith on feelings... You will reduce God down to your little dumb waiter. You will. If God doesn't do what you want him to do, then you will sulk. If God doesn't want you to do, if God doesn't approve of things in your life, you will just justify them. But if you read the psalm that I read, Psalm 47 or 49, God says, I am God. And so there's a point where we say, God, here I am. We sang the song, to the river, here I come. I lay down, I lay down me because I'm going to trust me to you. So, Father, we just pray this morning, what is the base of your faith? And if Jesus is the Lord, if Jesus is the one who rose from the dead for you, can that hold you? Can that sustain you? Can that be something that gives you power, to, strength to, to say, I want to, I want to trust in him with my life? Around the Easter, around the crucifixion, resurrection, those disciples were tested to the last, last place on earth with could we believe in this man? Everything around us is crumbling. And the good news of, of the resurrection is God never left them. He allowed them to go through the struggles, but he never left them. And he will reappear to each of us. He will reassure each of us. He will rise up for each of us. But sometimes there are lots and lots of people not following Jesus right now because he says, no, you can't have premarital sex. There are lots and lots of compromise around the Christian community on that issue alone. There's lots of compromise over many, many issues because we're such a self-gratifying culture and we just cry and say, God will understand. And he says, I understand that you're killing yourself. I understand that you're not listening to me. I understand that you want my love, but you don't want obedience. I understand a lot of things, but what I'm calling you to is I'm calling you to faith in a resurrected Jesus who is faithful and who offers life. And we can come to him this morning. What is the, what is the thing that you might want to say to him like Thomas? Because he's not angry 
excuse me, with that word. He just invites you to share it with him. Father, I pray blessing over faith in this room right now, over personal faith, over faith that's engaged, over a faith that doesn't sit on the fence. And I pray right now you'll push people off the fence if that's what they need. God so loved the world that he sent his son because you're precious. So if you want to, you can say, Jesus, thank you that you went to that cross for me. Thank you that you took my sin. Thank you that you rose from the dead. Thank you that because of your life, death, and resurrection, I can know the goodness of God. I could know God as my Father. I can know him as one who I can trust with my life. I ask you to forgive me where I go my own way. I ask you to forgive me where I give more authority to my feelings than to who you are revealed in your word and through your resurrection. And I just ask you to pour in me again today your spirit so that I will believe beyond what I can understand. So I call up faith in each of us in the name of Jesus. I call up faith for you to believe for the next thing in your life. I call up faith for you to believe that you are deeply loved. I call up faith for you to believe that you are held safely in the hands of a father who adores you. I call up faith for you to believe that you're also in the hands of a gardener who prunes you. I call up in you repentance because he doesn't like pruning all the time. He doesn't like disciplining. He doesn't like chastising. So I call up a, a heart that is yielded, a heart that is, is soft, a heart that actually says, Jesus, I want what you want over my life. I just don't always know how to get there. And then I call up in you an interdependence to lean on your brothers and sisters, to let them share the journey with you as you share with them, that together we become more than we could become on our own. And Father, I call up in this place evidence of your resurrection in the name of Jesus. Greater evidence, compelling evidence of your resurrection, both in our transformed lives, but also in signs and wonders. Evidence of your healing, evidence of your mercy, evidence of your grace. And God would say maybe today, you don't believe that I can do things today. If I can raise the dead, I can do anything. And so, Father, I speak against unbelief in the name of Jesus. I speak against compromise in the name of Jesus. I speak against lukewarmness in the name of Jesus. And you can't conjure up a change. You can just say, Jesus, I ask you to bring about a change in me. So, Father, bless the cries of our hearts right now for deeper faith, greater faith. And just receive from the Lord. If you need healing, go for prayer during the communion. Don't be too proud. And if you've been five times, don't give up. Keep going. Pursue and see what happens. God is good, he is faithful, he is kind, he is powerful. So Father, thank you that the core of our faith is not rooted in us, but in who you are because of the resurrection. And one of the reasons we share in the breaking of bread every two weeks is to remind ourselves of who God is. That as he met with his disciples before he went to the cross, he said, gather together, celebrate this meal, because you're going to need reminders of who you are and who I am. Because without me, you can do nothing. And without one another, you will not last. If Jesus were here in the flesh right now, what difference would that make to you? If he was here in the flesh right now, what would you talk to him about? Because that's what he wants to talk to you about, whatever is on your heart. He doesn't start with rebuke and disappointment. He starts with love. And then he leads you into the things that need to be changed. It's what he did with the disciples all the time. And so he met with them, even the one who would betray him, 